Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it's time to move straight away to the business at hand. And let us talk to Dr. Rakiba San, independent expert in British public attitudes, a man uh, who has said many very, very sage things in the past and who I'm sure will say the same uh, sage things again today. Rakib, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks for uh, for coming on this morning. I want to oh, tackle cool. the problem of racism in this country because I'm one of those people who believes that this is not a racist country by any way, shape or form. Because of what happened on Sunday night at Wembley, uh, you know, we have been led to believe that there are a lot of racist people in this country. I'm not sure that that's true. But the ones who are racist in this country and who we keep saying will always be racist... I think need to be found. I think they need to be expunged in some way. Um, and I think they need to be removed from, from, from this country because they're a stain on it. Mike, I think that in terms of looking at the country as a whole, I'd say that England is one of the most tolerant, anti-discrimination, pro-equality nations on earth. And there's a range of survey data which supports that. What we do have, though, we do still have a hardcore fringe of racist bigots mm. and some of them have indulged in uh, racist abuse being directed towards Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, uh, Marcus Rashford and Bukayo Saka after they missed their penalties uh, against Italy in the final uh, on Sunday night. I agree with you in that much of this abuse has taken place on social media. I think there should be more rigorous verification processes mm. before you're able to open a social media account. What we have are a number of people who are clearly racist. They hide behind their social media account. I'd also make the point that much of this racist abuse being directed towards those England players, they seem to be um, foreign-based accounts. Yeah, what do we know about that? Because we heard Gareth Southgate saying that and, and there was no further information given. Does that suggest to you that they're Italian? Does it suggest to you that they're from some other part of the world? The, the, the thing is, Mike, it's so easy for people to open social media accounts across a range of platforms. It's very difficult to tell, which is why I do think there needs to be a rigorous verification process. So that creates a situation where people are prevented from hiding behind their social media accounts and directing racist abuse, whether it's towards uh, English footballers or other people using those platforms. Yes. And that is the trouble, isn't it? Because 
it is all entirely now operational on social media. And I can't understand, and many people in the last two days have been calling for it, uh, I can't understand why the social media giants, the tech giants, effectively, Twitter, Facebook, Google, uh, YouTube, all of those people cannot actually operate. They can operate in a very sophisticated way in the sense mm. that they can track you and I. You know, they can send you a warning if they don't like one of your tweets because it's got the wrong phrase in it. But what they, can't, what they can't seem to do uh, is to shut these people down. It's a numbers game for them, isn't it, Mike? Uh, that that's what it is. They ultimately like the idea, oh, we have X number of users on our platform. When really, to be honest, that's the wrong approach. They should try and create a platform in line with their supposedly anti-racist spirit. Yeah. And I think part of that has to be bringing, um, in, uh, bringing forward and implementing rigorous verification processes, which ultimately means that people who would like to direct racist abuse and hide behind their social media accounts are no longer able to do so. Mm. And exactly right. And you made the point as well on your Twitter, and I'm aware that we're talking about mm. it, so I'm not going to be hypocritical here, but you made sure. the point on your Twitter account, 31 million people watched the uh, final of the Euros, and a very sure. small percentage of those people are the ones we are talking about. But rather mm. like the ones who broke into the stadium, rather like the people that, that uh, I've, I've been told were witnessed snorting cocaine and smoking on the underground, mm. lawless types, uh, young white men uh, who seem to be out of control, who seem to pay no attention to laws whatsoever. You know, mm. they're still an important people, a bunch of people to talk about because they're ruining stuff for a lot of other people. Absolutely. And I think that we shouldn't hide away from the fact that there has been a significant amount of moral decay in English society. Yeah. Uh, we, we shouldn't try to blanket that. We shouldn't cover that. If we want to live in a more stable um, society... And if we want to encourage responsible forms of behaviour, we have to call out irresponsible forms of behaviour. And that yeah. was certainly on show um, in the build up to, to the game. Uh, people looking to break into Wembley Stadium, people who didn't have tickets. Uh, to be honest, I just think the level of public disorder in the lead up to the match is unacceptable. And I think I think we need to be honest about that. Once again, though, I'd make the point, mo the vast majority of people in England what they did, they watched the game in the comfort of their homes with their loved ones, with their families. And that is very much what the, the mainstream England is all about. And that, that is the point I wanted to make in terms of the racist abuse being directed towards Rashford's Sancho and Saka. The, the, it's, a, it's a hardcore fringe of racist bigots. That, mm. that They're in no way representative of mainstream England, who I would think are heartbroken um, for those players for missing those penalties mm. and they'd really want and they would really want them to bounce back stronger from from that traumatic that, that, that undoubtedly traumatic event in their footballing careers yeah no listen I was very critical uh, not very critical but critical yesterday of Gareth Southgate I think he made some mm. mistakes in the final Agreed. I think he made some tactical errors and that should be mm. able to be said without being accused of being 100%. in any way you know a horrible person because there is that also there is that other part of British society uh, which is the you know do no harms uh, section where they say oh you can't be critical of anyone because that's not very nice well i'm sorry if you're paid a lot of money and you're supposed to do a job you're supposed to do that job but i was in no way and never would be critical of the kids taking the penalties because that's a tough job and they stood up and they took the chance and they put their lives on the line and they put their heads on the line uh, and they and they and they failed but that's that that's life we move on but what i can't understand rakeem and you and i have spoken many times we've met each other many times we know each other pretty well I don't understand people who view other people based on the colour of their skin. I just don't get it. 
I think it's ridiculous. And I think it's unfortunate that as the penalty shootout was um, unfolding, um, I, I, I did sense that, again, that there would be a fringe in society that would view the penalty shootout through the lens of race. Mm. And I, th I think that's quite, you know, I think that's a crying shame for our democratic But what do you society. think it's about? Is it about their upbringing? Is it about their um, nurture? Is it about their nature? What is it about? I think is I think upbringing would definitely come into it, Mike. I don't think there's there's no there's no questioning the fact that the kind of you know the, the kind of upbringing that you received, the parental attitudes um, in one's formative years, that counts for a lot in terms of how they view different groups in society. But once again, I'd really make the point, Mike, that this is it's very much uh, a fringe. Uh, it's a fringe section. Of, of our society. And I think it's really important that when in the build up uh, to the final, there was generally, there was a wave of solidarity which sweeped across the country. The vast majority of people in England, when it comes to framing English identity itself, they're more likely to frame it in civic terms as opposed to racial terms, Mike. It's more about your, you know, how people fulfill their economic obligations, how they contribute to their local communities and wider society. That's how people frame English identity as opposed to focusing on one's racial identity and ethnic origin. So I think what we have to do, we have to call out racism whenever we see it. We have to come up with robust measures to tackle it. My issue in this particular context is that we've had progressive voices use that racist fringe and try to um, depict the whole of England that way, or rather this is yes. the mainstream feeling. In and, I, and I think and that's, that's also that's also wrong and also dangerous because I'm not having that. And there are some people mm. on the left, I mean, I've already seen, for example, the last couple of days, uh, you know, some of these horrible videos from Leicester Square where these idiots are sort of, you know, marching about shouting racist slogans and all of that, mm -hmm. uh, where you've got people going, oh, yeah, this is what you get because of Brexit. And you're going, what? Are you talking well, about? It's got nothing to do with Brexit. These are people who are ghastly, who are vile, who need to be stricken, really, out of any meaningful uh, role in our society. It's got absolutely nothing to do with politics. It's got nothing to do with Brexit. It's got nothing to do uh, with any, you know, right wing political um, ideology. It's got everything mm. to do with hatred. Well, I mean, I think the idea that if we voted to remain in the EU, this wouldn't be taking place. I think that's quite questionable. If, if I'm being completely honest, yes. I think that pe people need to focus at the issue, you know, in the issue uh, on the issue at hand. I think that Tyro Tyrone Ming's intervention um, in terms of criticising the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, who said that fans have a right to yeah. boo and in the sense that she'd stoked uh, th these racist sentiments. Right. The idea that racist people are taking their cues from the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Yeah. Is absolutely I mean, I, I think Tyrone Mings is a quite a thoughtful individual, but I think he got this one wrong. And I, I think, think so. uh, he should have taken a lesson uh, out of the uh, the leaf of actually Marcus Rashford's book and said, look, mm. if you get involved in politics, you enter an area that you're not very familiar with. In fact, uh, for Pretty Patel to say um, that taking the knee was gesture politics, I think she's entirely correct. I think it is gesture politics. Mm. And in fact, what we've seen is that taking the knee uh, actually didn't make anything change, did it? Well, I, I think that what it is... When you're looking at the act of taking the knee, firstly, people will naturally associate it with the BLM movement. And in turn, they'll associate with radical objectives such as 
um, stripping police forces of their resources, overthrowing the market economy, support for direct action. They'll also um, think about things which took place at BLM demonstrations, so the defacing of Sir Winston Churchill's statue. Black police officers in London being racially abused, that was actually on the rise mm. um, during those uh, BLM demonstrations. So people are perfectly within their right to question the usefulness of taking the knee from an anti-racism perspective. And as you've said, I question the effectiveness of taking the knee. What we need are robust and practical measures to combat racism, which continues to take place in British society. Yes. And so, I mean, we've fought this for a long time, Rakim. I mean, you've lived in this country all your life. You have been a British man in this country mm. all your life. You've lived in a place called Luton, uh, which has got, you know, interesting Indeed. problems of its own. What's your view of how racism has changed uh, or differed or, 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 or uh, you know, affected you over the course of the last uh, few decades? Well, I, I think for me, firstly, as you know, my, Luton is an interesting place. It's <laughs> pre predominantly working class, hyper diverse. Mm. But actually, find a way overall to get along uh, in terms of the, yeah. you know, the, the relations between different communities. Luton has had its fair share of problems. It's had Islamist protests. It's also the birthplace of the English Defence League. But once again, growing up and seeing those extremes, what's really important, you have to concentrate on the mainstream. You're always... I, I, Without sounding too pessimistic, you're always going to have those unhealthy fringes in, in society. Yeah. I think they are going to always exist to an extent. But what you re really need to focus on is the fact that the mainstream on the whole are tolerant, they're fair, they have meritocratic values, and ultimately they're, they're more interested in what someone brings to the table as a person and their attitude as opposed to the color of their skin mm. and where they can trace their, their trace their origins. I, yeah. think, I think that's the key. And I think it's always important to remember that when we're tackling these kind of sensitive issues yes. surrounding race and identity. No, I think you're absolutely right. Stay with us, Rakib. We're going to take a little short break. We are going to be back. We're talking to Dr. Rakib Hassan uh, about what to do about this very, very small number of horrible, ghastly individuals in this country uh, who seem to think that racism is acceptable when it really, really isn't. But it's also important not to mistake mistake critics of uh, people who happen to not be white as racist because that's not true either the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio welcome back to the independent republic of mike graham right here on talk radio lots of people making the point on social media that many of these accounts supposedly are registered abroad that doesn't mean they are abroad you know i would like to know from twitter uh, i certainly would like to know from facebook and i would like to know from all the social media companies exactly what they know because they know an awful lot these are the same people by the way that can put an advert on your facebook page after you spoke about something that they thought you might want to buy you're telling me they can't root out who these people are? Uh, Sam has got a great idea. He says social media could have two sign-up options. One, verify your account, then you can post, comment, like, follow, etc. Two, anonymous account, then you can only follow and browse. Simples. You know, it just takes the independent republic of Mike Graham's listeners and viewers to come up with common sense solutions. Let's talk to Rakib Hassan, uh, who's been talking to us about this particular problem. My view, uh, Rakib, on this is that we've been trying to root these people out for a long time. I don't accept any longer that it, nothing can be done and they will always be the same and they will always say the same things. I would like to see sanctions put down against some of these people when we find them. Take away their bank accounts, take away benefits if they're on them, take away their ability to travel, take away their passport, make them live a kind of almost shadow type life so that they cannot, in fact, enjoy the fruits of this country. Well, I think that might, there's definitely discussion to be had 
um, in terms of how we tackle racially and religiously motivated abuse um, in Britain. Mm. I would like to see uh, tougher criminal uh, penalties uh, in terms of combating that yeah. kind of behaviour. Uh, but by the way, Mike, this is irrespective of the target group, irrespective of what kind of racial and uh, what kind of racial discrimination or um, ethnically driven abuse that may be i do think that we need to bring those tougher sanctions that you 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 speak of uh i, I definitely feel that that needs to be reflected in in our laws yeah i well. think so because i think part of the reason that some of these stupid idiots do what they do is because they don't have any fear you know i was watching mm. the videos of these kids breaking into wembley the other night and they were basically just rolling over the security guards because they knew uh, that nothing was going to happen to them and that they would probably be successful because they did it against uh, the security guards during the Denmark game and they did it again on Sunday night. But, you know, somebody pointed out to me yesterday, you know, there was no trouble during the Russian uh, um, uh, f- Football World Cup in 2018. Guess why? Because the Russian ultra has made it pretty clear that if the English supporters came over and tried to do anything that was anything like mm. the hooligan behaviour we've seen before, they would get very badly smashed up. Well, I'd make the point, Mike, and I think this is something that we both agree on. I think this country has become a soft touch when it comes to law and order. And I think it's quite remarkable, really, that we've had a conservative government. We've had the conservatives in power for 11 years now. And if they really want to be seen as this inclusive, anti-racist, conservative party, Mm. then part of that has to be introducing a law and order regime which effectively tackles and robustly uh, tackles this kind of social disorder Mm. that kind of public disorder does not serve britain's reputation or it doesn't serve england's reputation well at all on the international stage and even though if you look at if you you set it against the wider population this you could you could describe it as fringe idiocy it is the kind of social disorder which needs to be robustly tackled well it is i mean yeah I mean, you can call it fringe idiocy and you're not wrong to call it that. However, it does have very, very far reaching effects. You know, I saw loads of stories over the weekend of people who were taking their kids to Wembley uh, only to witness Mm. these ghastly scenes of of men beating up other men for no other reason than they were wearing an Italian shirt. I mean, that's not a night out for your family, is it? Absolutely not, Mike. And I'm so glad that you raised this point. I'm sure there are families up and down this country who would love to take their children to those kind of sporting mm. events. But they'll see events, that they'll see um, those kind of images and they'll be massively put off by it because they wouldn't want to put their family in a position of danger. No. Mike, as you know, I'm a passionate England support. I follow football religiously. But throughout some areas, I, I see those kind of images. Even I wouldn't really want to be near it, if, if, if truth be told. Yeah, no, me so neither. As you say, yeah, so as, as you say, even though you have this as, as a select band of people who really don't have any respect for the rule of law, which, to be honest, they call themselves patriots, but they can't even stick to their own laws of the land. No. Um, These are patriots which is, which is who smash up their own capital city. You know, that's absolutely for me. And, and they, they're such patriots. They're, they're, they're perfectly comfortable with creating all kinds of damage in London, mm. uh, in, the, in their capital city. So I would like to see a robust political response to it. And I would like to see... 
the introduction of new laws, which tackles that kind of uh, th that kind of public disorder, which could be very off-putting off for passionate sports fans who would like to attend those events but wouldn't want to be near it because they wouldn't like to place their families in a position of danger. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Rakeem, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Dr. Rakeem Hassan, independent expert in British public attitude. He's got a book coming out shortly as well. We'll talk some more about that next time we have you on. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us talk to Annabel Denham, Director of Communications at the Institute of Economic Affairs, because yesterday I think we saw Boris Johnson once again signalling that he has kind of thrown away uh, the ridiculous, uh, crazy uh, sort of advice that he's been getting from Chris Whitty, Patrick Vallance et al. over the course of the last uh, year and a half or so. And he's basically worked out that, yes, there will be infections. Yes, there will be new cases of coronavirus. Yes, there will be positive tests. However, the number of people in hospital is so low that actually... It's fine to open up the economy properly on July the 19th. And it says, even on the front page of The Guardian, PM lifts restrictions despite fears of exit wave and 200 deaths a day. Well, there aren't 200 deaths a day and there isn't an exit wave. What is wrong with the media? Annabelle, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. Very well. Feeling chipper, full of the joys of spring. I mean, we're going to get rid of all the uh, the people that we don't like in society, uh, uh, who are nasty, horrible, racist people, and we're going to sort them out. Um, but as far as July the 19th is concerned, it seems to me that Boris has finally wake, woken up and worked out, actually, the people would like to return to normal. If I'm being honest with you, Mike, I felt more optimistic that Boris had reclaimed his buccaneering spirit about a week ago. Mm. I was quite pleased when Matt Hancock stood down as health secretary and we had Sajid Javid taking over and he was making a lot of the right noises about the need to reopen our economy, reopen our society. But last night's press conference has made me feel a little nervous about what's going to happen after the 19th of July. We're hearing a lot of noises about urging businesses to do something, mm. expecting individuals to wear their masks, to social distance, advising companies, pubs, venues to enforce some of these uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. And if the government's asking you to do something, that sounds a lot to me like a law. It sounds like businesses are going to respond uh, positively to the government and start enforcing face masks, start enforcing social distancing, perhaps trying to break up large groups of people gathering. And I'm starting to wonder really how different life is going to be on the 20th of July from how it is now. Mm. Except I, I, I take your point and I know what you mean, but equally, I think they also know in Downing Street that it's one thing to say you must do it. It's another thing to say, would you mind doing it? Because I think what they realise is going to happen is that most people who are sick to death of all this nonsense will not do it. And if you try to make them do it, they'll just go, well, if it's not the law, you can get lost. Well, I certainly hope that that's the case. And I agree with the principle of allowing businesses to decide who to let onto their premises. Mm. If they want to enforce uh, vaccine certificates or face masks, then they ought to be able to do that. This is freedom of association. And, to, and if they're going to enforce face masks, then perhaps we could apply that same logic to other areas. Why not have um, pub landlords decide whether people are allowed to smoke, for instance? Yeah. We know smoking ban in pubs that was introduced in 2017 
2007, absolutely decimated the pub mm. industry. I think over the eight years after that, about 7,000 pubs closed. Um, so, you know, if only we could apply those rules across a range of areas. But I hope, you know, like you, that most uh, business owners, most shop owners, most uh, pub landlords will decide that they don't want to enforce the rules, that they'll just allow anybody onto their premises yeah. and... Um, I mean, we, we know. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of people called the City Group of Pubs, uh, which seems to me to be a bit of a sort of gastro yuppie uh, chain of pubs with pubs in places like Streatham and and uh, you know Clapham and Lavender Hill and that kind of thing. And they're all saying that well, we're we're going to keep the masks in in place. The the Gaucho chain of restaurants, rare restaurants, are going to keep them as well. That's fine. I won't go there. I won't give them my money, and neither will an awful lot of other people. But there may be other people who go, oh, that makes me feel safe, so I'll go out and do that. And that's fine. But in the end, it's sort of creating a two-tier society. And I would rather that nobody did it. Uh, if it's no longer required, why would you insist on something? It's like saying to somebody, uh, in order to come into my restaurant, you must wear a jacket and tie. Now, some places do that. Um, but it's considered to be a bit old fashioned. But if we're going to go back to that kind of view, I mean, you could have all sorts of, uh, um, you know, ridiculous rules. Like we only allow people who are left handed into this restaurant or, you know, we only allow Catholics into this restaurant or, you know, it's not a very healthy way to live, is it? Well, that would be very sinister indeed, Mike. Um, and I agree. But then I think that most business owners are thinking of the bottom line. They will respond to consumer needs and consumer appetites. To your point about those venues wanting to keep face masks in place. I mean, the mask theatre that you get in pubs and bars and restaurants is completely absurd. For an airborne virus, yeah. why patrons need to put a mask on when they go to the WC, but they don't need to wear it at the table. I mean, it's these sorts of rules that have really eroded public trust in the government to make good decisions mm. throughout the pandemic. I think so. And also to make it a kind of... Um, do it if you want uh, or don't do it if you don't want scenario. Sainsbury's have already come out and said that they don't mind what you do. They'll let you in to their uh, shop if you're not wearing a mask or if you are. You know, it, it, it does, because of the way human nature operates, it does suggest that there might be a few kind of, shall we say, disagreements between the general public as well, doesn't it? I think we're going to have trolley wars, Mike. I really do. You talked about a two-tier society. I think we're going to have a very polarised society where you'll have those who choose to stick to some of the uh, measures that have been in place over the past few months, mm. uh, giving sort of withering looks to those and tutting. Can yeah. you imagine those who've decided that they value their freedom and they don't want to wear a face covering because, quite frankly, masks are an inconvenience. They're uncomfortable to wear. They affect your ability to communicate. And, you know, the evidence suggests that they do very little to mitigate mm. the transmission of, of the virus anyway. And when we've had this phenomenal vaccine rollout, we don't need measures like that in place anymore. No, and I, I used to be, you know, reasonably... Um, shall we say, willing to be to be OK about wearing them in supermarkets and wearing them on, on public transport. I've not been on public transport for a while, but I mean, lately I'm just not wearing one at all. You know, I've been into several shops. I've been into several shopping centres. I was in one yesterday to pick up my dry cleaning. And normally I would put the mask on, even though I was only walking 50 yards. I just didn't do it. And nobody said anything and nobody cared. And the people who were wearing masks didn't look at me in a weird way. And if they did, I wouldn't care about that either. 
Well, I think if you tell the public that you're going to remove a particular measure in a week's time, most people will just take matters into their own hands. Yeah. And anybody who's read a newspaper in the past few days and has seen scenes from Leicester Square during mm. the Euro final where di social distancing and all of these interventions were being completely disregarded, will just, many people will think, well, why bother? Yeah. But then on the other side, Mike, of course, we had this, that Ipsos Mori poll about five days ago showing that 40% of people support the continued wearing of face masks and think that they ought to be yeah. mandatory. 26% of people want casinos and nightclubs to be... I mean, I don't know where they're finding these people. I mean, I don't know. I really don't know where they're finding these people. But, you know, let's face it, 48% of people wanted to remain in the European Union and we left anyway. So why would we pay any attention to any of these people who say they want to keep these restrictions? And when you see Patrick Valance at Wimbledon at the weekend, finals day, sitting there quite happily um, with uh, Ashok Sharma, uh, Sharma, I mean, basically, here's a, here's a guy... Uh, who is working with Chris Whitty, who says if you're in a public place uh, which is crowded, you should wear a mask. He's not wearing one. And yet some of the Wimbledon staff have to wear masks. It yeah. does, it, back to that one rule for them and another rule for everyone else and the way in which senior figures or those who have access or those who are wealthy have been able to find loopholes and dodge some mm. of the rules so that their existence over the past six months has been entirely more pleasant yeah. than... Well, I Boris Johnson and Tom Cruise managed to go to Wimbledon and the Euro finals uh, both in the same day. Now, that would, I suggest, uh, give you a reasonable amount of exposure to um, an awful lot of people. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, they can't tell us then not to do it. Well, no, I exactly. I completely agree. I think that the public are tiring of the hypocrisy that we're seeing from some government ministers. We've had it, of course, with Matt Hancock and his breach of the rules that he himself helped to bring into force. We had it with Neil Ferguson, you know, countless examples of senior figures um, setting some of the legislation that has affected all of our lives, dampened our mm. joie de vivre, and yet uh, they're not actually adhering to them themselves. It's been you know, it's been extremely frustrating mm. and I think it will have damaged public trust in some of our leaders. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. But I mean, I remain optimistic. Uh, I'll try and convince you to be as optimistic as I am, Annabelle, by the time the 19th comes around and perhaps we'll have to meet up and go on some kind of jolly uh, down the river on a big boat with loads of people who want to take their masks off. It could be fun. Uh, Annabelle Denham from the IEA, Institute of Economic Affairs. Thank you very much indeed. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. There are many things to be thankful for. One of them is James Chiaverini, uh, who has some great restaurants in West London. Uh, I was at one of them just last week, the new Pino. Uh, he's also director of Il Portico, the oldest Italian restaurant uh, family run in London. James, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Nice to see you again. Now, listen, have you recovered yet from celebrating on Sunday night? Because I was, I was with you... Um, uh, last week when the, the, the Spain-Italy penalty shootout happened. And yeah. incredibly, you didn't have a television, right? So I put it on my phone and we watched the penalty shootout. All your staff crowded round. They completely abandoned anybody else that was in there. And we watched the penalty shootout on my phone. I mean, it must have been quite a night for you on Sunday. It was, yeah. I mean, my body hasn't fully recovered. My throat, as you can still hear, is a little bit on the whole <laughs> side. My, my liver's feeling a little bit, still feeling a little bit delicate. But apart from that, yeah, it was a good game. And yeah. I think, what, to be honest with you, Mike, England could not have come closer. I know. You know I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it was, you know, for all of the disappointment and for all of the kind of hopes and, 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 and things that went wrong, it was a great tournament for England and for Italy, I think. I mean, there are, still, there are some people who think that you guys were a little bit dirty. But listen, you know, that's what we expect. <laughs> you know you know it's all it's all fair it's all fair in love and war that's what right? i say that's what i say if you're not if you're not expecting to be dragged by the by the shirt off the field <laughs> by the italian captain you're not prepared <laughs> you got it it all comes down to who wants it more we came to win exactly right exactly right listen brilliant now let's talk about food because that's your other uh, great passion in life uh, you've got the new restaurant pino there which is great i've i've actually been sending people around that amazing picture of me uh, with that great big bone uh, from the ribeye steak that you made which is delicious one of the greatest steaks i think i've ever had um, and massive right so i recommend you go there and do that but amazingly apparently it turns out that People who don't eat meat, who've been telling us for years that we're endangering the planet, you know, it's bad for the environment. It turns out eating vegetarian food all the time and vegan food all the time is also not good for the planet. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes down to, you know, effectively a monolithic production of food. If, you, if you're basically going to eat nothing but ultra-processed food, it's going to be terrible for the planet, and it doesn't matter what that food is. Mm. It might be ultra-processed hamburgers, it might be ultra-processed soy, it might be ultra-processed almond milk, it doesn't make any difference. The, the, the best meal, the best way for anybody to eat, frankly, is to have a well-balanced diet sourced locally. You can't go wrong with that. That's basically what we all grew up on. That's what our microbiome cries out for. You want a locavore diet where everything is sourced as close to home as possible. Right. And you want a mixture of meat, fish, dairy, and vegetables. You know, shipping over almond milk from, from South America is just not great. And it's not great for you, and it's not great for the planet. Right. And all you're really doing, other than, sorry about the, the ambulance. It's very violent. Really it's very violent. Oh, it's an ambulance. I thought it was police car. Very <laughs> violent over in Kensington. Still these days. In Kensington. <laughs> uh, all, all you're really doing is you're just pushing the problem onto poorer countries to right. solve. 
Well, that's right. Because, I mean, why wouldn't you drink locally sourced milk? And I know that the dairy industry comes in for a lot of uh, grief from the vegan brigade. But, you know, why, as you say, why would you not use milk that's, that's made in this country in order to import stuff which is not proper milk from somewhere else? It's crazy. We've got the highest standards of animal welfare in the world. You know, and at the end of the day, remember that vegans and vegetarians, especially vegans, they constitute less than 2% of the population. Yeah. And even within that, it's microscopic within the rest of the world. It is genuinely, a, a, it, it, it's a first world um, uh, thing to be vegan. There's plenty of people in the world who, who you know, who, would, who just can't afford that choice. Yeah. And they just have to subside on what they, what they can get locally. But the reality is that, is that, you know, if you've got high welfare standards, you shouldn't be concerned about this. You should be concerned about, you should support high welfare, high welfare standard countries like Britain, and you shouldn't be importing things from countries where they have lower standards of welfare and where they've been diverting water supplies out from, from you know, from villages in the uh, in Mexico, I think, to divert them to the avocado production so yeah. that you've got poor villages that now have to bathe in sewage water because they don't have any clean water because it's all being diverted for some avocados. Right. Couple of wallies up in Islington called Tarquin and Frutella because they want to smash <laughs> in February. Well, this is it. I mean, you, know, you, you go to the favelas of, uh, of Sao Paulo uh, and Rio de Janeiro, you go to the townships of South Africa, uh, Johannesburg, you're not going to find too many people going, I'm a vegan, I'm a vegan, are you? <laughs> this is, I mean, this is insane. I mean, you, you ask anybody who lived through the war generation, you ask my grandparents. You know, and they'll tell you the same thing. You know, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it all comes down to, to luxury. It's a, it's a luxury choice for people to be able to have, but they just need to realise that that choice isn't without consequences and you're just pushing the blame onto other people and you're pushing the onus of their responsibility on the other people. It's just, it's just greenwashing. That's all it is. It's just pure and simple greenwashing. Yeah, exactly right. Because you were tweeting out last night that all this rain is going to be good for mushrooms, for example. Um, yeah. And so you're going to go out and, 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 and source some mushrooms. I, I love the idea of that. You know, I was last night, you know, I mean, you might find this a bit bizarre, but I, I opened my fridge last night and I found a bag of spinach that I didn't know I had. And I thought it, it was past its sell-by date, so I thought I'd better cook it. And um, I made a, a sort of instantaneous uh, chickpea and spinach curry, and it was great. And I ate yeah. it, and I still got a bit left. I'll have a bit more tonight, maybe. Um, and I'm all about sort of just using up food that happens to be lying around because I'm thinking it's going to go off, so I'll just cook it. And, I, you know, it's always yeah. fresh, and I would never dream of, of ordering that in. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And that, that's, that's basically that's a healthy attitude that we need to have with food. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, any form of, of extremism in people's diet is always bad. People who refuse to touch carbohydrates, people who refuse to touch, you know, any animal produce, people who only eat meat. It's not good for you. You've got to have a balanced diet like you've got to have a balanced life. Exactly right. And how about the business world at the moment, James? You saw uh, Boris probably yesterday talking about uh, July the 19th, absolutely definitely opening up and all the rest of it. Uh, is that going to mean a lot to you? Yeah, well, it means we can go back to full capacity. I mean, for the first time in, in two years, you know, we've looked, we're down to about uh, 55, 60% capacity at the time being because of social distancing. But obviously we can put in all the extra tables that we lost pre-pandemic, so that's wonderful. We can go back to full capacity. My staff are, um, are all acutely aware of, of the situation. They can wear masks if they choose, they feel that we need to wear them. Most of them don't want to. We'll probably continue traveling to and from work. If we're going to be on a crowded bus, we'll probably continue to wear masks just out of because you're going to be in yeah. close space with a bunch of strangers that you don't know. But in the restaurant, most people, most customers now want to be served by somebody without a mask and yeah. they want to get back to a sense of humanity about things. I think that's right, because it's really quite, um, I think it's difficult, apart from anything else, with, with, wait, with waiting staff particularly. You can't always hear what they're saying if they're wearing a mask as well. If it's, you know, the restaurant's reasonably um, busy, it's loud. You can't always hear terribly well. And if, if they're talking through a mask, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. 
It is, it is. And also it means that we can keep, we can actually keep a safer distance without a mask because we don't have to lean into what everybody's saying. We, we're still using alcohol gel. We're still using, you know, one-way systems for the staff. Mm. So there's still all this safety stuff in the background, which we continue to do sort of back of house, which doesn't impact the enjoyment of the customers, customer experience. Mm. You know, mask is one of those things that customers are pretty strict about, you know, in the sense that I've spoken to my customers about it and they want them gone for the most part. And, and what about the tax situation? Because, I mean, you've struggled through valiantly, in my view. I mean, you've, been, you've, you've, you've adapted, you've done home delivery services, you've, you've had outdoor dining, you've, you've opened a new restaurant in the meantime. It's been incredible uh, that what you've done over the course of the last year. Um, I, I was speaking to some pub owners uh, recently who said they're, they're looking for a break on VAT. They're hoping yeah. for something to be given a little bit back to hospitality. What's, what's yeah. your take on all that? Yeah, I mean, I've always said this, absolutely. VAT is, 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 is the single biggest barrier to get to profit. If you, can, if you can just let us get to profit, I mean, my message to the Chancellor, to Mr. Tunak was, let us get to profit, and then if you want to split it, let's split it then. But don't go between business rates, which is basically a tax as soon as you open your front door, and VAT, and then you've got all your PAYE, you've got all your national insurance, you've got all your payroll and everything else. It is very, very difficult. A tax break on hospitality would be the single biggest thing that they can do to help. VAT, I think, is now at 5% on food until September, so that's huge. Um, but we need people to come back, we need them to spend, and we need tourism to come back as well. Yeah. But that's going to happen this year. Does that mean I only paid VAT at 5% last week when I was there? Thank God for that. Uh, hang on a minute. Well, well, only on the food, Mike, which I have to say was a small portion of your bill compared <laughs> to the rest of it. <laughs> I mean, unbelievably, I rather rashly decided to pay for five people. I don't know why I didn't. You should have stopped me. You've got to stop me doing that, for God's sake. You know, my children are going hungry. Next time. My children are going hungry as a, as a result of that. But And, and as far as the uh, the local kind of uh, Stasi are concerned, the guys who told you you had to dismantle uh, all of the, uh, the screens outside your restaurant <laughs> while we while I was there having lunch, um, what are they being like? Are they, are they behaving themselves? Yeah, they've left me alone now, Mike, thankfully. I Thank think now, I think everyone's just so fed up with this whole situation. Everyone's just sort of just held up their hands and just said, let everyone crack on with it with a bit of common sense. Hmm. Yeah, well, common sense is, is is our middle name, of course. And what about the, uh, the the sort of the season coming up? You you've said to me that you're going to have to close in a, uh, for a couple of weeks because of a chef that you can't you can't replace who wants to go have a break. Um, is that situation likely to improve? Do you think are people going to come back to work in the sector? I think that it's going to be. I think until September, we're not going to be able to see what's going to happen. I think that next year, I should imagine the government is going to bring in some sort of Australian style visa scheme for young people who want to come on in a very limited time and work in hospitality. Maybe if they're aged between 18 and 30, mm. they can come over for two years. Um, I think that's going to help out the industry a lot. And I think that at the end of the day, it, it, but this year is going to be tough. It's still We're still in survival mode, right? You know, and we're, we're not going to get out of it until at least maybe if we're lucky Easter next year, we still got autumn, we still got winter, we still got flu season to go through. So fingers crossed. Right. And we know that if there is any kind of further restrictions on social mobility in the autumn and the, and the winter, we know that the first industry to be sacrificed is going to be hospitality. Yeah. We're going to be the first ones to go 100%, Mike. So between now and then, it's just make hay where the sun shines. Get out there, work every hour that we can work, bank as much money as we can bank, and hold on to it because you're going to need it this winter. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, James, listen, all the best. And I presume you'll be going off to uh, to Sussex to try, to try and source some more uh, game at some point. I'll knock on your door. Please do. Yeah, do. If, uh, seriously, if you come down, let, let us know because I might well be down there if I'm not in your restaurant eating. James Chiaverini, a uh, new restaurant called Pino, uh, the obvious uh, older restaurant, Il Portico. Uh, very much worth a visit uh, if you've got the chance to do so. And as he says... Um, hospitality needs to be able to recover. They do need to be able to get back to normal. 
they will be operating probably maskless in the restaurant and I think people will be very happy to see that and if you don't want to go to a restaurant where the waiters and the waitresses are not wearing masks then you just don't go but you don't stop everybody else from going that is the way of things those are the rules and that's as it entirely should be the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio uh, let us speak to Dr. Alan Mendoza, Executive Director of the Henry Jackson Society, because uh, coming up this week, it's likely uh, to be the case that the government will offer Tory rebels a sort of olive branch over foreign aid. Uh, Theresa May has been amongst one of the uh, foremost people leading the charge to say that foreign aid should go back up to 07 uh, of the GDP of this country, as opposed to going back down to one, 0.5 and staying there. Uh, Alan, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, good morning, Mike. Is that your understanding that uh, that they're going to cave in on this? Uh, well, no, I didn't. I don't believe that's the case because I think they've called the vote uh, on the assumption they're going to win the vote based on their existing sort of uh, policy position. So I, I believe there has been an attempt to reach a compromise with people. Basically, they've been looking at obviously uh, looking at independent verification of when we get to 0.7 percent, or rather have the capacity to pay for it again. Mm. Uh, but I think right now the feeling is the government's going to try and, you know, kind of stiff it out and see what happens uh, later today. Right. I mean, what I'm reading in The Times this morning is they're suggesting that a sort of compromise might be found, which is that uh, it would not take four or five years for that uh, to be looked at. And it might go back to 0.7 kind of sooner rather than later. Well, yeah, I think that's a key thing. The key thing, looking at things like the Office of Budget Responsibility, will they be able to kind of give the prediction in that way? Various other sort of similar um you know, kind of ways of, 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 you know, kind of stroking backbenchers and reminding them, basically saying, look, we will be in a position shortly where we can return to the 0.7%. Um, and that also leads to, you know, kind of satisfying you that this is not a long term mm. change, but something rather short term. Yes, exactly right. And of course, what's been the main sort of, um, I suppose, fallout of this whole conversation is that people have started debating again whether or not we should even be giving foreign aid to an awful lot of the places that we do give it to, whether it's 0.5 or 0.7. Maybe we shouldn't be giving it at all. Well, yeah, I think the interesting part of this discussion is um, how this tallies with public opinion. So we've seen some rebellions where people haven't rebelled on issues, where public opinion is clearly in favour of rebellion. So, for example, on genocide, for example, in, in uh, Xinjiang province, you know, mm. the general public are perfectly happy to recognise that as genocide, but MPs are moved back that way. This way, it's very interesting to see that the uh, MPs are out of step with public opinion, and it's fascinating they're willing to rebel on this subject when they are so out of step. Look, I personally think, of course, there's a role for foreign aid, and clearly we've understood that for some time. It's been important as a country. We understand soft power, helping others. There's a relevance to that. But clearly, in the middle of a pandemic, when people are looking at you know, finances, they've got to work out what is most important when it comes to national uh, you know, budgets, etc. Everyone's taken a hit in various ways. And it's quite right to say that for a, for a brief period of time, we need to be looking you know, at events closer to home than further afield. Yeah, well, exactly right. But I mean, do you think there will be a sort of a, a, a reckoning, if you like, by the government about exactly what they spend their foreign aid on and whether it should be more accountable in some ways? Because I think the great British public uh, look at some of the projects that we're financing and they think, what on earth are you, are you doing? Why are you sending money to China, for example, um, to teach people how to grow rice? Well, completely. I think you, know, you look at the nature of projects, you look at who's getting the benefit, you know, who the beneficiary of this money, and you realise straight away that there's a big problem in terms of um, in terms of some of the criteria used. 
The other issue uh, that relates into this is, you know, giving money to bi or bilaterally as opposed to multilaterally. And it, we spend a lot of money, Mike, on um, organisations, international organisations, where we've got no clue where the money actually goes. Mm. Hundreds of millions here, hundreds of millions there. And we don't know how it's actually spent. Now, how does that help you with accountability? Yeah. It's very and also, at the end of the day, Alan, it's our money. It's not their money. You know, the government, unfortunately, if they're, especially if they're in for a long time, uh, they, they fall under the misapprehension that they've got this budget to spend. But it's like, well, sorry, if you didn't have any tax revenue, if you didn't have any money coming from the great British public, you wouldn't actually have any to give away. Well, like I said, there is, look, there is a value in foreign aid. We're not going to say that it's a completely valueless proposition. But, you know, at a time of pandemic, when public finances are stretched, this is taxpayers' money, and taxpayers want to see um, a return imminently on that. I think longer term, they all accept there is a value in this, or at least you know many people do, that it, it does make sense from a human point of view and from a, a national point of view to do this. But right now, the government is simply asking, let's just take a pause for a moment. We're still going to be one of the highest givers of foreign aid in the world, by the way, on 0.5%. It's temporary. Can we not look at this in a couple of yeah. years' time when and I think, again, a lot of people in this country think, well, why should that be a good thing? You know, why are we giving so much money compared to other nations of the world? And I've heard the argument made that other nations should stump up 0.5% uh, or 0.7% in the same way that we do. But the one question I very rarely hear asked that, and I don't know whether you can answer it since you're not actually in government, is can you point to one individual benefit that we have had from giving any of this money to anyone? Ah, well, actually, I can do. I'm not in government. I can tell you what the, the benefit is. So if you are, for example, um, promoting peace and stability initiatives or um, prosperity initiatives in certain parts of the world where otherwise there would be chaos and disorder, what you are actually doing is preventing that chaos and disorder from overcoming the local areas, leading to refugee flows coming to guess where, Mike? Coming here. OK, so, so that's not a specific... Yeah, but that's not a specific benefit. You're going to have to now tell me where that has worked. Well, I can point to numerous chaos zones, whether it is in Europe or beyond, where we have put money. Now, can you say our contribution specifically was responsible for X, Y and Z? No, but collectively, with, with the aid money going in there, you can see a benefit to that. You can see that by um, resolving issues locally in far off places, it is much better to do that than to bring the problems to our doorsteps. Well, maybe we should give a bunch of money to the Calais Ports Authority so that they can stop all these bleeding migrants coming over on dinghies. Well, that is simply a law enforcement issue, and why the French are doing that, you'll have to ask the French. But we yeah, but that. I mean, if you want to see cost-benefit analysis, and you're telling me that we're supposedly stopping chaos zones from exporting refugees, uh, that's not what they're saying in Dover. No, no, I, I agree with you, because, the, the re, look, our resourcing cannot solve global migration problems. You and I both know that, OK? That there's definitely no, no way that Britain, on its own, can resolve every problem in the world and make everyone rich. That's not how it's happening. But you asked for one specific benefit. I've given you one. I'm not suggesting it's a silver bullet. I'm yeah, but it's not. But I'm not buying it, though, Alan. You'll have to do better, is what I'm okay. saying. We're the best you know, in the world. I'm not buying that we're stopping refugees from coming here because we're not. Okay. You, you don't have to buy it. The reality is, <laughs> I would say more will come if you don't do this. If you say... I disagree. Devil, I think more will come the more they the realise. No, I, I would say this. I would say more will come, Alan, once they realise that when they get here, uh, they can stay here forever. That's why they're coming. Well, another good reason why we have to work on the immigration programme, why the government's reforms there are so desperate and needed and long overdue. Because as you say, part of this is a push and a pull factor. So it's quite clear that there are certain push factors from other places. But if we can reduce the pull factors, i.e. making Britain a much uh, tougher place to get into, then yeah, that's going to have a reaction that way. And then maybe, Mike, 
you can go and say, right, we don't need to spend the foreign aid money anymore. Yeah, but I mean, this is the thing. I mean, most of the foreign aid money that I've seen, and I know that much of the, the sort of publicity that it gets is, is not always uh, good for, for the government. You know, there are, it's on sort of programmes that seem pretty, pretty meaningless. Arts projects, you know, like the rice thing in, in China. You know, it doesn't appear to be being spent on infrastructure of countries. Full stop. We should not be giving money to any country with a space programme, OK? We should not be giving money to any country with an advanced military. If you're really interested in helping the world's poorest people, and that in itself is a moral argument, and you may not like it, but you know, it's, it's one that exists, you should not be giving it to countries who are will, willfully spending money mm. on things that should not be where you know, lesser developed countries are. So in reality, part of this is a debate, as you've just rightly pointed out, about where we are spending the money and on what sort of programming. One of the things I would like to see much more of is, and in fact we've argued, is for a reapportionment, if you like, of spending into some of the uh, diplomatic power that Britain has as well to kind of affect change that way. So I would actually like to see you know, better English-speaking facilities in other places like that, because again, you are integrating into the global economy that way. And I do think you are going to store up trouble. If everyone stopped giving foreign aid, you will really have a devil take the highest situation, chaos in much of the world, and you will see whatever you think is happening now with migration, you will see it multiplied as a result. Yeah. And do you think there's any benefit in trade? Because sometimes that's an argument made by government officials that, you know, we, the reason we give money to India and China is because it helps in trading uh, deals that we might do over and above that. I'm not sure that's a, that's an argument either, really. Um, well, the, the argument for, you know, whether you're doing trade, look, that, of course, does then become an economic benefit for, for people here. If you're doing more trade, if you're doing, you know, if that leads to economic development in the UK, then in the sense you're doing investment as opposed to aid, aren't you? So it's a slightly different argument uh, in that process. But if we know that trade in general is a good thing because you are both uh, lending, well, you're, you're, you're giving money domestically with the growth of industries here and also some at the other end as well. So clearly, trade is a benefit full stop and we should welcome it. Um, whether that's the, you know, the, kind of the path of international aid is another matter, of course. No, of course. Dr. Anna Mendoza, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Director of the Henry Jackson Society, of course. Foreign aid, a massive kind of uh, football politically. Lots of people don't think we should be giving any money away at all. Uh, you heard Alan there trying to justify what's good about us giving money to other countries. And he reckons that it stops many, many people deciding to have such terrible lives in those countries that they decide to come here anyway. Uh, he reckons it would be worse if we didn't do it. Hard to argue that, really, because it's difficult to prove. But I would say this. I have yet to be told and yet to be shown any particular good that has come from giving foreign aid to any country in the world, because I can't see it. And I think we should just cut all of it. I don't care whether people say, oh, but that means you're such a horrible person. But it means you're not willing to help other people. Well, I'm very willing to help other people. We help other people all the time, every day, every single hour, every single day. But we can't save the world, I'm afraid. You know, it's not a Michael Jackson video. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And now it's time to say a very good afternoon to Andrew Allison. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm very well, Mike. You? Yeah, very well indeed. Um, slightly puzzled, really, by the sort of mixed messages that we're seeing and the mixed messages that we're getting all the time. You know, first of all, we get told that definitely it's all going to happen on July the 19th. Then we get sort of leaked stories saying vaccine passports might be a thing. Other uh, uh, ministers in the past have said they won't be a thing. Uh, we see Patrick Vallance at Wimbledon at the weekend, despite the fact that Chris Whitty says if you're in a crowded place, you should wear a mask. Nobody's wearing one. And I've had people saying to me, yeah, but it's an outdoor event. No, the point is they made it very clear when they first made the uh, pronouncement about masks. Yes, take them off. But we would recommend that you keep wearing them in certain situations. And surely Wimbledon Centre Court would be one of them. 
Yeah, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? Yeah. But it's one rule for them and one rule for the rest of us. And we saw that at the G7 summit, didn't yes. we, in Cornwall? Well, not just for that, all... but we can now add Wimbledon to that. You can add the football yeah. to it as well. I mean, it's a nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, it is. This has always been my biggest fear, Mike, that Freedom Day would not be Freedom Day, that restrictions would be would be in place. I mean, the government is saying you're not forced by law to wear a mask, but we recommend that you wear a mask. And yeah. as you said, all these different businesses are coming up with different rules and regulations. So you can walk into Sainsbury's without a mask, but will you be able to walk into Morrison's or Asda or, right. or Tesco without one? Nobody really knows. The whole thing's a mess. Well, that's the trouble. And I fear as well that because of all these kind of zealots who think that we're all killing everyone if we're not wearing a mask, there will be situations where perhaps civil unrest will emerge and occur at various points. Because if you say, for example, you're going to get on a bus and they say to you, you must wear a mask to get on the bus, and you say, well, I don't want to. I mean, can they stop you getting on the bus just because they've made a recommendation? It's not a law. It's not a law, so you think that you probably could get on the bus, but I don't know. It depends what the di different rules and regulations are for each individual company. And, uh, you know, the whole point of, of Freedom Day was that all these rules and regulations had gone. Yeah. That we were free to live our lives again. Uh, that's the whole point of the vaccination programme. I mean, we were told... Uh, right at the end of last year, just before Christmas, just bear with us. All we need to do is to jab the elderly and those who are most clinically vulnerable mm. and things will be will, will be good. And it's been delay after delay. The, the reopening has been at a snail's pace and those scientists who come on ra various radio stations and television channels saying that we, we're rushing this, it's all too mm. quick. Well, Boris announced this roadmap back in February, five months ago. So it's certainly not being rushed. But we're going to have to wait and see. But I certainly will not show any proof of the vaccinations that I've had to enter a public no. restaurant. I'm just not going to do it. No, I'm I'm with you. I will not do that. And also, I've, I've seen at the weekend, there's a couple of uh, uh, organisations, chain of pubs called, I think it's City Pubs, who are saying that they're going to require masks to be worn while you enter the premises and go to a table. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not coming. Uh, similarly, with uh, I think it's Gaucho restaurants owned by Rare Group. Uh, they're saying they're going to keep those rules in place. I'm not going there either. But it's stupid, though, Mike, isn't it? It's as if COVID knows when you're sitting down and when you're standing up. Mm. You know, we had a holiday in South Devon at the end of May, beginning of June, and yeah. we were in this pub in Dartmouth, well, outside the pub, we were sitting outside, and a group of six people wanted a table. Mm. One of them wasn't wearing a mask. A member of staff shouted across at this particular man and said, wear your mask. He did. He wore it for 10 seconds. He walked past two tables and then sat down and, and then took his mask off. And then took off. it off, yeah. I mean, I mean, all of that is just is just nonsense. It is. And I mean, the hospitality people will say, well, it's because the government have made this the law. So we've had to do it. And I have some sympathy with that. But come June, uh, July the 19th, it's no longer the law. So they shouldn't be doing that. Precisely. Yes. I had a lot of sympathy for because all, all the stuff we're doing was obeying the law mm. and not trying to get in trouble. Fine. I understand that. But from the 19th of July, that is it. We do not have to wear face coverings. So pubs should not be insisting on it. In fact, you'd like to think that they want to, they want to get as many people inside their yeah. premises as possible. Well, you would like to think so. I mean, all sensible people that I know that run restaurants and bars are doing exactly that. But I don't understand why you wouldn't do it, because we've been hearing for the best part of the last year that hospitality, although it's been open at times, hasn't been able to make enough money to go into profit because of the social distancing, because of the perspex glass and all of that. And, and you think they'd jump at the chance. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? I mean, I mentioned on your show quite a few months ago a, a lovely French restaurant that my wife and I visited in Beverly. It was on the 4th of November mm. last year before the lockdown came. 
that restaurant has never opened. Right. I mean, we were. I mean, I mean, they couldn't open legally really until May anyway. But that restaurant has has never opened. Uh, mm. Another casualty uh, of all of this. And I, and I just fear that uh, the more restrictions that you put in place, especially as people have changed their habits, people are now used to eating more at home, cooking for themselves, yeah. getting a few beers or bottles of wine from the supermarket. You know, they've, they've got used to not going out. The, the more restrictions that you put uh, in place, the more barriers that, that are there, mm. then surely that means there's going to be fewer people going into your business. And I, I do fear a more lockdowns, more restrictions by the time we get into the autumn. Yes, I think that could well be. I mean, the only reason, though, for doing any more lockdowns is for the government to take that view, because I'm hopeful and, and I'm encouraged to see that uh, in the briefing yesterday, even old Chris Whitty was showing us a graph which showed a very low number of people in hospital, around about 2,000 compared to 34,000 back in January. And despite the fact that the uh, the number of infections is up to sort of 30,000 a day, um, it's not really having any effect on hospital admission. And that, and that is a key thing, it seems to me. Well, that is the key thing. And uh, I, I saw a story in my local newspaper last week that said that it was the first death from COVID for about two months. There's nobody on ventilation. There's hardly anybody in hospital. Yes. Very few people. So the vaccines are doing their job. Now, that was the whole point of it. That was the deal that the government made with the British people months and months ago. They said... Get the, get the vaccine, as many people can get the vaccine as possible. And then once that happens, we will be safe to, to, to have freedom, to, to lead our lives again. And for the government to then say, well, you don't have to wear masks, but you should wear masks. Oh, it's perfectly possible for businesses to say, well, we want proof of whether you've been vaccinated mm. or not or had a negative lateral flow test. I mean, the government is just breaking its deal with the British people. Well, that's the thing. And at the same time, they're opening up nightclubs. And I'm kind of going, really? OK, um, I get that. And I'm glad they're opening up nightclubs. And I'm sure that uh, many nightclub owners will be very glad as well. Um, but I've seen at least one story today uh, of a nightclub chain who are saying we're not going to let people come in uh, under any kind of regulations whatsoever. We're not going to ask for vaccine passports. So the whole picture is going to be very mixed, I think. Well, the last time I went into a nightclub, which I have to admit was quite a long time ago, <laughs> um, I, 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 I seem to remember it was full of young people. Well, that's right. Uh, the, I mean, the, the, I, the, I, don't, the, the, I don't tend to frequent nightclubs unless I happen to know the owner of them, in which case I get invited and I go. But basically, yeah, you're right. Um, most young people are not going to be vaccinated. So how's that going to I mean, if they had vaccine passports to enter nightclubs, nobody would have one anyway. Well, they wouldn't. They'd have to go by these lateral flow tests, mm. which have been proved to be unreliable at best, haven't yes. they? Uh, but what's well, I mean, Wimbledon is, is a joke. I'm told that people um, who had to be tested before you go to Wimbledon do this lateral flow test, which basically allows you to not bother taking the test if you don't want to. All you've got to do is put down the batch number and whether it was negative or not. So if you have a positive test, you don't even have to tell them. Nobody actually knows if it's positive. So the whole point of it is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean the bottom line is how many people are getting seriously ill, how many people are going on to ventilators in hospital and in intensive care, how many people are dying, and it is very few because the vaccines are working. So why do we need to go through this whole rigmarole? You know, I mean, we've had all uh, the, the number of people on the streets, I mean, obviously some shocking scenes on the streets as well of violence. Mm. We've had all these people mixing together, and, and I can bet that, yes, the number of, of COVID cases will go up. But the number of people getting seriously ill will not. And this is why we need to, to open up. I mean, Boris said in a press conference a week ago, if we don't do it now, when are we going to do yes. it? Well, I totally agree. But you can't open up 
and then just say, we're going to put all these restrictions on mm. you as well. And I've seen quite a few people on social media saying that if they're prevented from entering the premises of uh, one establishment or another, there might be a flurry of lawsuits. I don't know whether you're uh, familiar enough with the law, Andrew, to tell me the answer to this, but is there a legal kind of um, um, situation that you could invoke if you are not allowed into a, a shop or you're not allowed into a shopping centre or you're not allowed into a restaurant because you haven't been vaccinated or you refuse to show that you have? Well, please, you've asked me the question, because the answer is I don't know, but I think it's something that I need to find out. Mm. I think it's something we all, we all need to find out. Yeah. Because I, if it is not the law of the land that you must wear a face covering, I can't see how individual shopping centres, as you've mentioned, and other businesses can then start demanding it. Yeah. I mean, what I can tell you as of now uh, is that, you know, the shopping centre local to me, um, I used to wear a mask to go in there because I thought it was a courtesy to the people that were in there. That's what they asked for. Uh, the last few times I've been going in the last couple of weeks, I haven't bothered. And nobody's been there to tell me to wear one. Nobody's been there to, 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 to stare at me and give me dirty looks. You know, people, I think, are much more now accepting of the fact that there's going to be a lot of people not wearing a mask. Well, yes, and they're going to have to be prepared for that from, from next week because I certainly will be wearing one. I mean, I've, I've I considered after the 21st of June not wearing a face mask mm. uh, when I went to supermarkets. But I, I'm naturally someone who does obey the law. Um, but after the 19th of uh, July, I, th the law has changed. Therefore, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not going to wear one. Mm. And I think many people will be in your, in your boat. And, and as, as further, the, the further it goes on, the more that will be the case. Because I'm really not buying the fact that 40% of people in this country still want to keep wearing one. Or the 20% of people who apparently want to shut down nightclubs and casinos forever and never reopen them. I'm just thinking, I mean, who, you know, are who, are these? Oh, who are yeah, they? Who are they? I, I, I don't speak to any of them. I mean, I speak to all sorts of people in and out of politics. Uh, good friends, acquaintances. I don't speak to anyone who actually says, oh, yeah, I want to continue wearing face masks. I, I, I want all these restrictions mm. to continue. Well, I say I don't come across anyone. I do come across the old person, but they're very few and far between. The it's only people I see like that are the sort of the numpties in the media uh, who bang on trying to sort of virtue signal about how terrible everything is if we all get back into lockdown, uh, while at the same time being spotted on centre court at Wimbledon uh, or at the football. Yeah, well, yes, but I think you've got to remember <laughs> that the, uh, the, 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 the British government, through, through behavioural scientists, has done a damn good job of terrifying the British people. Yeah. And there are some people who are genuinely terrified. Uh, and, and this is going to be another problem that we're going to have to, to address. And the government has got a lot to answer for yes. right throughout this pandemic. I mean, we were originally told it was three weeks, then it was six weeks just to save the NHS. And here we are, 16 months later, still debating this. Well, this is it. And I don't think it's any accident that many of those advisors who are in SAGE are actually behavioural scientists because that's what they've been hired for. They've been hired to try and change our behaviour. And quite frankly, yes. I'm not doing it. I'm not putting up with it anymore. And I'm not doing what they want me to do. And if they try and nudge me in any particular direction, I'm going to run 100 miles in the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, they don't get people like uh, Professor Carol Sikora on yeah. stage, do they? No. Who, who could then say, well, all, all these lockdowns and restricting access to the NHS is probably going to cause thousands of more uh, deaths th through cancer. They yeah. don't seem to be interested no. in people like that. And they're the people they should have been listening to. Exactly right. Well, Andrew, listen, we'll keep fighting the good fight. We'll keep an eye on them and we'll make sure that they don't try and get away with anything that we won't let them get away with. I appreciate your time. Andrew Allison, the head of campaigns at the Freedom Association, because that's what it's all about. It's about freedom. It's not about a sort of freedom. It's not about a portion of freedom. It's not about a small piece of freedom. It's not about a bit of freedom. It's about freedom, all of it.
The whole thing, the whole shebang. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.